Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar. Episode 16, The Scope of Salvation, The Communion of Saints. We spoke last episode about the nature of the church, and in some ways this reference to the communion of saints is an extension of that. Now, saints might sound a bit archaic to contemporary listeners, or perhaps like holy, it might sound a bit lofty for the average Christian to aspire to. But while we do talk about particular saints, so figures in the history of the church who have exhibited exceptional faith and godliness, saints is also just a general term for believer. So who makes up this communion of saints? Well, let's hear from our guests. Here's Alistair. Well, a lot of people will give you different answers to this. So let, let me tell you the way I tend to think of this. And in emphasising this one aspect, I, I'm not denying there are other aspects, but this is to me really quite helpful. This is going back to Cyprian of Carthage in the third century. Uh, and Cyprian said, look, um, I want you to imagine that um, you are sailing in a ship and you're going home and there is a crowd of people waiting to welcome you who've made that journey before you they're your family your friends you're going to see them again and so Cyprian's trying to make the point look we are part of this wonderful community here on earth but it doesn't stop there and that in effect one day we'll be connecting up with our bigger community, those who've gone before us, those who've helped us maybe in our Christian lives. And for me, it's partly about this idea of reconnection. It's also, of course, very much about actually being in God's presence, but I'm not in God's presence alone. You know, it's a bigger thing than that. So for me, if you like, it's about, in effect, um, being able to hold out this hope of finally being reconnected with a bigger vision of humanity, with those who have gone before me, who haven't just disappeared, they're there waiting for me, and one day I'll be part of that bigger reality. It sets a bigger context for the life of faith. And Ben has a slightly different way of thinking about this. St. Augustine spoke about the communion of saints in this way. He said, There are very many who seem to be within the church who are really outside, and there are very many who seem to be outside who are really within. That might seem like a complicated statement. What did he mean? He meant that the true church is not just the visible gathering that you can see on a Sunday. It's not just the visible group of people who claim the name of Christian for themselves. The true church is an invisible spiritual community united to God and to one another in love. And because the true church is an invisible community, it means that we never know for sure who's a part of it and who's not. This is true of communities in general, by the way, if you ask, what is the, where is the community called Australia? Well, I can point you to Australia on a map and say, it's the people that live there, but there are hundreds of thousands of Australians who live in other countries, right? They have a passport which shows where they really belong. And there are many people in Australia at the moment who are just visiting. They're on holidays. They got stuck here because of coronavirus or whatever. You can't just point to the visible collection of people and say that's the community called the Australian people. You'd need to check the passport. And in the similar way, Augustine said that there is a kind of passport. That is the love of God. A person whose heart has said yes to God in love is part of the spiritual community of 
believers. And there are many people, he said, including pastors and teachers and leaders, many people who rock up to the visible assembly of the church, but aren't actually part of it. Why? Because their heart is attached to other things, not to the love of God. I think that's a really helpful way for thinking about the Christian community. The Christian community isn't just everybody. It's a special community which exists in this world as a representation of something that's possible for everyone. And when you think about some of the ways that this community is described in the Bible, it's described as being a little bit of salt that makes the whole meal tasty, a little bit of light that brings light to everybody else. The Christian community doesn't have to be big. It just has to be real. And it represents something that is able to directly affect and impact on the whole world. Alistair's response puts me in mind of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, how it tells us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. But what about those who haven't specifically gone before us in the faith? Well, let's consider a question that we might call the finality of Christ whether Christ is the final truth about God and about the world. This claim is offensive to many today, that Christianity has some kind of exclusive access to truth and salvation. What about other religions? Former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, has a helpful take on this. In a lecture on the question, he said, What the New Testament does not say is, Unless you hold the following propositions to be true, there is no life for you. What it does say is without a vital relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God made flesh, you will not become what you were made to be. You will not live into the fullness of your human destiny. End quote. So when it comes to talking about who is saved, humility is crucial. And again, Rowan Williams offers a helpful perspective, saying, and does our belief in uniqueness or finality commit us to saying that there is no hope for those outside the family of faith, whether someone is of another faith or of no faith? We Christians, he goes on to say, are very reluctant sometimes to leave things to God to sort out. We often have a vague feeling that God hasn't read the proper books, and sometimes we feel rather protective towards him to make sure that he knows the right policy. I find, and this is still William speaking, speaking for myself, that I'm very content to let God be the judge of how anyone outside the visible family of faith is related to Jesus or is turned toward the Father. There are lives, and we've all encountered them, marked by some of those things I would say are central to the gospel and for which the person involved has no words. There are lives in which you can say, what is going on there has so Christ-like an aura about it that I would be very foolish to say it has nothing to do with the act of God through the Son and the Spirit. And yet the person may say, I'm a loyal Muslim. I'm an agnostic. I have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about Jesus. I am, as I say, content that God should decide what is going on. So that's Rowan Williams. Or perhaps you've read C.S. Lewis's final novel in the Chronicle of Narnia series, The Last Battle. There's a story in it that really illustrates what I'm saying here about salvation and other religions. In it, the world of Narnia comes to an end, and a number of the characters find themselves in Aslan's country. Aslan is the god figure. This is a parallel to what we might think of as heaven. And among them is a very young soldier, Emmeth, 
from a foreign country who is perplexed to find himself there, having been a faithful adherent to a different religion. He comes before Aslan in worship and humility, only to find that the character of his devotion to the foreign god was such that Aslan accepts it as service to himself. And of course, this is just a story, but isn't it a hopeful one? In Romans, Paul makes an appeal on behalf of Israel, saying, how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Passages like this and the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the world that we find in Matthew 28 have driven a host of Christian mission efforts since the earliest days of Christianity. But what of those who fall through the cracks? There remains today millions of unreached people, perhaps living in remote locations or devoutly adhering to an alternative faith, who have never been presented with the Christian gospel in a meaningful and culturally relevant way. Without professing faith in Christ, are these people included in God's plan for salvation? In fact, this question came under the scrutiny of the Roman Catholic Church during the Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican, this is just known as Vatican II, which was held in the 1960s. And one of the encyclicals, the official statements of the Catholic Church that came out of this council, argued that salvation would surely be extended to those who have not heard and responded to the gospel, quote, through no fault of their own. This kind of position on the scope of salvation is what is known as inclusivism. Inclusivists argue that salvation may come to people who do not explicitly recognise Christ, but have responded in faith to God to the extent that God has been revealed to them. As a position, it sits between exclusivism on the one hand, which argues that only those who explicitly recognise Christ as saviour are saved, and pluralism on the other, which sees all religions as leading to salvation. What do the scriptures have to say? Probably the verses that come to mind are ones like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, spoken by Jesus in John chapter 14. Or Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. These verses seem pretty clear that salvation is through Christ alone. But what about all of those people who lived before the Incarnation? We know of select people in the Old Testament who are referred to as saved, those listed in Hebrews chapter 11, for example. But what about everyone else? Do they lose out on salvation? We can start to answer this, I think, by looking at Romans chapter 3. After cataloguing the immensity of human sin in the first few chapters, Paul concludes that there is no one righteous, not even one and therefore that justification is a gift of grace. But in speaking of the atonement, Paul goes on to say that God in divine forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. However we understand the cross, the atonement of Jesus is a once-for-all event that reverberates throughout all time. It completely transforms history. It stands for all those who lived before Christ and all those who will come after. Acknowledging that salvation is through Christ alone is not the same thing as declaring that only believers in Jesus will be saved, though. We'll think through some of these ideas a bit more when we look at what atonement is and what our hope is, our eternal fate. 
The purpose for creation, the gospel, is about so much more than salvation from sin. It's about life. It's about becoming who we were truly created to be. I keep banging on about union with God, but this is what it means to realize the end for which God has created us. We'll continue these threads in future episodes, but I want to close today's reflection by turning to another question about the scope of salvation. Another one that might seem a little left field, but how about other planets? Now, before you switch over to another podcast, thanks for making it this far. I'm not an extraterrestrial hunter. I'm not waiting around in crop circles to evangelize to aliens, and I'm not trying to convince you of any theories. This is another completely speculative question, but like the incarnation anyway question that we spoke about in episode five, it has its uses. Asking whether there might have been alternative Jesuses for other beings helps us figure out our theological positions on a number of things. And one of those things is this question of the finality of Jesus that we've been talking about. How can the atonement of Jesus extend throughout all history and even apply to those who are unaware of his existence? Well, some question whether this is actually the case. Perhaps rather than extending to all creation, the incarnation of Jesus has its parallels. There are multiple Jesuses to multiple species. I'm just laying out some of the positions that exist here, by the way. The poet Alice Maynell captures this idea in her poem, Christ in the Universe. She beautifully expounds the gospel, then asks whether God may have undertaken similar but different revelations in other corners of the universe. And this is a question she acknowledges we cannot know the answer to right now. But the poem's last two stanzas read, But in the eternities, doubtless we shall compare together here a million alien gospels in what guise he trod the Pleiades, the lyre, the bear. Oh, be prepared, my soul, to read the inconceivable, to scan the myriad forms of God those stars unroll when, in our turn, we show to them a man. Now, I don't have all the answers. I do know that Jesus is the revelation of God that has been given to us and the only truth we know. I believe that God is able to work in ways beyond my understanding. In fact, the Bible shows us time and time again that we, we have underestimated the magnitude of God's grace and salvation. The Jews, anticipating a conquering Messiah who would restore the earthly kingdom of Israel, were surprised to find that salvation was much bigger, entailing universal peace and the forgiveness of sins. And early Christians were surprised again to find out that even Gentiles were included and they didn't have to follow the law of Moses. So when it comes to the grace of God and the scope of salvation, I tend to err on the side of generosity. Next episode, we'll look more specifically about how we understand atonement. But as we finish up, think about your understanding of salvation. Who is it for? This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.